Have you ever noticed a pervasive aesthetic that just seems so similar? It happened to me. I looked up at a music festival and was surrounded by at least three people wearing the same jacket. It would have taken me aback, except I'd seen this jacket before. I'd seen it in my Instagram feed and had considered buying it too. It was creepy to think how much the algorithm knew me, knew all of us, and I was seeing its influence right there in front of me in the physical world. My guest today is literally writing the book on this phenomenon. Algorithms have been around for a while, but at some point seven or eight years ago, algorithmification took over our feeds. Today, it's more normal to see something from an algorithm optimized for engagement than to see posts from the people we explicitly follow. This kind of spoon-fed experience has had profound effects on our culture, our communication, our media, and more. What does this look like in virtual and physical places? What do we lose out on by living this way? How can we break free from this bubble? How is generative AI going to affect things? And what role does curation play in all of this? That's today's episode. Welcome to the Art of Curation, the show from Flipboard that explores the role of human taste in a tech-driven world. Each episode, we talk to someone who's an expert in finding signal in the noise. People who do this for a living in media, tech, fashion, music, photography, and more. I'm your host, Mia Qualiarello. Like you, I get overwhelmed by the sheer amount of content out there. I crave authentic people to guide me in making smart choices that make my life better. People with taste. The real kind. My guest today is Kyle Cheka. Kyle is a staff writer at The New Yorker, where he writes a column on technology and culture. He's also the author of The Longing for Less, a book about minimalism, and a forthcoming book called Filter World, about how algorithms flattened culture. In this interview, we get an excellent preview of his book and a real grounding on the essential aspects of taste and culture. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I want to dig right into the premise of Filter World, which is going to explore all the ways in which experiences are shaped by algorithms. What made you want to write about this? I, I think I realized just how pervasive algorithms and algorithmic feeds were in our lives. Uh, and I, I wanted to write a book that took that on as a whole. I kind of had this feeling over kind of the mid to late 2010s and just getting worse and worse up until now in 2023 that algorithmic feeds and digital platforms were just kind of having a chokehold on culture and communication and media and entertainment and kind of everything that we experience is mediated by them and, and spoon fed to us. So I think I was observing the effects of that happening just in my own life as an internet user. And I, I really wanted to write something critical about it and just kind of explore what's happening and elucidate it for people. And what does that look like in practical terms in both digital and physical spaces? I think in digital spaces, it's pretty familiar. Like your Facebook feed works via a recommendation algorithm. Your Netflix homepage is also constantly recommending you content. Spotify is building playlists for you or automatically playing a song that that recommendation algorithm thinks you might like. Um, so we see how all of our feeds and all of our digital consumption is, is mediated by algorithms. 
But I think what we're understanding more now is how those recommendations and those digital platforms are also influencing the places we go in the physical world, some of our actions in the physical world, like taking photos of things for Instagram, and also just how we make money, um, particularly for anyone who is working in a cultural field or trying to be a creator or an artist, you have to contend with algorithmic feeds all the time. We constantly butt up against these these algorithmically mediated digital platforms in any aspect of our lives. And I think we're starting to see how that's a negative thing and it, it doesn't make our experiences necessarily that much better or, or make our culture that much better. I felt that early last year I was at a music festival and I looked up and I saw everyone had the same jacket around me, (laughs) which was a jacket I myself had been targeted at, you know, on Instagram. So I didn't know what I was experiencing, but I, I, after reading some of your work, I was like, put two and two together. Like, oh yeah, this is the influence of my Instagram feed, like physically (laughs) around me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, since the algorithmic recommendations influence what you buy and what ads you look at and essentially what you desire in various cultural fields, it's really easy to notice when someone is being guided through the same algorithmic pathways that you are. So I feel like over the past eight or so years, uh, we've had this series of objects or aesthetics or, you know, styles that we recognize as these algorithmically homogenous things that everyone suddenly has. So it might be that jacket or it might be like the, the Amazon coat that was super popular in 2020 or a particular rug design, or a certain kind of ceramic object that's really popular on Instagram with kind of pastel colors and blobby curvilinear shapes. Um, so in my in my book and kind of in my thinking over the past bunch of years, I think that homogeneity is because we're all traveling through these same algorithmic pathways, and they're kind of guiding us toward the same end result. And there might be a lot of end results, like various buckets, but within your bucket, you're kind of always guided toward the same object or aesthetic or experience. Now, what about the flip side of that? Because platforms like Spotify and, and Flipboard are, you know, feeding me things are actually also expanding my horizons. So how do you reconcile these two things that algorithms seem to be simultaneously flattening and expanding culture? Yeah, it's a really it's a really clear tension, I think. Um on one level, I think our internet can't function without recommendation algorithms. Like we, the information that we see just has to be filtered and curated for us in some way because a human being can't face that bombardment of information. We need help. We need like a robotic or human guide to what we're supposed to pay attention to. Um, so in that way, I think recommendation algorithms can bring us new things and can help us make sense of the vast breadth of user-generated content on the internet. Uh, But I think my problem is not so much the existence of algorithmic recommendations, but just how they've been applied, particularly on the largest digital platforms. So like TikTok or Instagram or Twitter even, um, the, the recommendations just seem to have taken over and they get... They, they occupy more and more space over more time and the user has less control over what they're seeing. So I think my issue is just how broadly 
the recommendations are, are taking place and how much they control what we see rather than the choices that the user might make on their own. Part of your research, I think in September of last year, you tried to shield yourself from algorithms altogether. What yes. did you learn from that experiment? And are you still living in that state? I, I'm not. <laughs> I think I think it was it was a really hard thing to do, and I I write a column about internet culture and and news for the New Yorker, and so I don't think I can really do my job if I can't be on the internet essentially. Um, but I decided to do it in part as an experiment for the book, and in part just because I have become so sick of all of my consumption habits and you know, reading and listening and looking at images to be mediated by algorithmic feeds. Um, so I, I figured that the best way to figure out how to escape that or to see what happens when you, when you get outside of that was just to kind of log out of all of those digital platforms. Um, so I got off Instagram, I deleted TikTok, I stopped looking at Twitter. Uh, and it took a while actually to reconstruct my experience of the internet just because the internet has been so shaped around these feeds that we're supposed to use them. Like people don't go to website homepages. They don't often buy music directly from musicians. They don't, you know, find an art book rather than look at an Instagram feed for images. Um, so I kind of had to figure out ways around, around using all those feeds. But I did end up feeling a lot better. I think I think it was very clarifying mentally. I felt like I had less noise in my head. I was more intentional about what I was consuming. And I could kind of follow my own whims and taste more so than, than when I was just looking at feeds all day. So I think it was a healthy exercise. And I think taking that three-month break, I think it was September, October, November into December, it made me totally rethink and renegotiate my relationship to all these platforms. Like I think before I thought they were totally necessary. <laughs> like I couldn't live without them. I couldn't not be on Twitter. I couldn't not look at Instagram, but it turns out you totally can, you know, it's a silly, a silly thing to observe, but life goes on without them and you will not die if you don't post your coffee on Instagram or tweet your random <laughs> thoughts. Is any of that part of the solution that you will suggest in your book? Yes, there is a chapter that kind of kicks off with this algorithm cleanse. Um, and I think in part, it's a good experiment to just kind of get off them and, and see what exists without them. And that forces you to rely on your own taste and go direct to the source of things that you like, uh, which I think is very healthy. But I also, you know, I'm... I'm not a Luddite. Like, I love the internet. I'm on it all day long. It has totally enabled my career and my life and, all, and so many experiences that I've had. Um, but I think there's just better ways to use these tools and better ways to relate to algorithmic feeds. Um, so I also end up encouraging people to look for more human curators and tastemakers, like connect to people more directly, and also just look for smaller scale platforms that are like address specific bodies of culture and have a better relationship between creators and consumers. 
so not so much Instagram or Twitter, but something more like Flipboard or more like Patreon or these smaller scale streaming services like Isagio, which is as if Spotify was only for classical music and had much better information. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of trying to guide people toward better digital experiences and things that are more sustainable for culture overall. I'm glad you mentioned other curators. You've also written about curation as losing its meaning because so many people are doing it and it becomes an act of narcissism more than an act of service. So what do you look for in a curator that's worth following? (laughs) They're hard to find, I think. I think there's the internet demands everyone be a kind of curator like you're a curator of your own Instagram, you're a curator of your opinions on Twitter, you're a curator of what playlists you listen to on Spotify. So I think there's a lot of curation going on, but not, it's more in the sense of just selecting between stuff. Um, I think curation to me is much a much more deep-seated act that has more to do with the caretaking of culture and building more context for things and creating histories that that might be overlooked um so when i'm looking for people to listen to or follow you know the the first and easiest thing is just to see if their taste resonates with yours like do, do you like the kind of vibe that they're creating with with what they're putting together but then i also really look for people who are building connections between things and constructing more context like giving you the information of where something came from, how they found it, how it came to be, um, connecting it to related things. If an artist was influenced by another artist, uh, connecting it to a period of history in which there were other forces at play, like politics or economics. Um, So I think in some ways that has to do with, you know, being a good writer and a good researcher and, and bringing your audience something that they didn't know. Um, but I think that curation can take many forms. Like you don't have to start a sub stack. Like it, it might be a TikTok creator who you really like listening to, who talks about vintage photography or something. Like I, I follow one account. I have no idea who the guy is. He only has like a thousand followers. Uh, this account records short video essays about, vintage photography from like the 19th century in China and other parts of Asia. And, you know, it gets like a hundred likes every time, which is not very much, but I really like listening to it because it's so smart and deep and specific. And I feel like it kind of exists just for me in that moment. I feel like some of the qualities that you just mentioned for good curators are also qualities of journalists. Do you think that journalists have a leg up in this field. <laughs> I do. I mean, sometimes I think the book is a little bit of an argument for my own fields, uh, <laughs> just because, you know, we, we want, I think we all want better forms of media and more good content, not less good content. Uh, we want to feel close to the creators who we like. Um, so I think there is an argument for journalism, certainly. I would, I would argue that my job should exist. <laughs> but I think... I mean, journalism is changing and cultural commentary has changed so much in the past 10, 15 years. And I don't think those are bad changes. Like, I love that I can follow someone who makes great playlists on Spotify or 
find an interesting YouTube channel or subscribe to a writer's Substack and know that I'm supporting them directly. Um, so I feel like when you hear journalism, you think of a New York Times columnist or something, this kind of ivory tower position. But I think there's a lot more interesting things happening and the, the whole ecosystem has developed a lot. I feel like we there's this point of algorithmification or this moment in 2015, 2016, when all of our feeds became much more algorithmic, there were more recommendations. Um, and we've kind of struggled with that for a bunch of years and only now are we figuring out ways around it and, and ways to reconnect with people we like directly. So I'm, I'm very optimistic in that regard. What do you make of the de-influencing trend now where on places like TikTok and Instagram, people are telling their fans not to buy something? Is this backlash <laughs> something you're studying as well? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a backlash to influencerdom in general just because it's become so saturated. Like, is influencer means so many different things like some influencers the point is to kind of guide you toward things you can buy or consume like where did you get that dress or where did you go on vacation um so i think there was there has been a total exhaustion with that kind of model and the de-influencing part is a reaction to that and a way to be like no i'm not just recommending things that you buy or ways to copy me, but I'm telling you like what not to do and, uh, you know, pointing out things that you might be disappointed in essentially. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a natural reaction and it's, it's a thing that certainly happened before. Like we're kind of just remaking consumer reports and saying when a thing is bad. Um, but I still think the core function of, of influencing or being an influencer is still building this aspirational lifestyle image. Um, and that persists whether you're telling someone to buy something or not to buy something. I'm sure you're also tracking how generative AI is impacting culture. Yes. Were you able to, <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, really ignore <laughs> you can't it ignore it. Now. Right. What are some of your thoughts on that? And did you get that into the book? It's not quite in the book. I think, uh, you know, the AI boom, as far as the normal public, has only happened in like the past six to eight months or so, or maybe a year at most. So I feel like we're really still coming to grips with what that means. I think no one really has any idea. Um, but I think I kind of get to it toward the end of the book. Uh, my theory, which, you know, I have not written yet, I haven't like done my full reporting and research, but I think algorithmic feeds have this way of encouraging people to act in the same way, like the buying the same jacket or writing your tweets in the same way or taking the same kinds of Instagrams. And that was because the feed promoted certain kinds of content and certain kinds of content worked really well. And we kind of had to figure out what that content was like by trial and error. But I think with AI generating tools, you can kind of instantly generate something that you know works or that complies with the aesthetic average or the stylistic average. Um, so the AI tools make it easier to create more content than ever, faster than ever, but I don't think it makes it any more meaningful necessarily. I think it kind of becomes more cliche, more, more stereotypical, faster. 
and I, you know, I've seen a lot of interesting AI projects and I enjoy it, but I haven't seen that much meaningful culture come from it. I think right now it's in a more like entertainment function. So when we think of human taste in a tech-driven world, and I want you to make me feel better here, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what are the what are the uniquely human things that only we can do to enhance and elaborate and celebrate on culture? Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's the, I mean, culture is an innately human thing, I think, like, Culture has been impacted by all sorts of technology over many centuries, whether it's trains or photography or the internet. Um, so I think culture survives and human taste survives. Like you never like everything. You're always deciding what, you know, what you like more and what you like less. Uh, but I think what machines can't approximate, whether it's algorithmic feeds or AI is how humans desire surprise. They desire things that are out of our current frame of reference and things that might challenge us or upset us or things that we don't like right away but might come to like six months or a year down the road. And those are all qualities of great art. Like great art is challenging and provocative and ambiguous and it sometimes takes time to understand. But I think algorithmic feeds and certainly AI tools are like against all of those qualities. The, the, the technology we have right now is all about instant engagement and the thing that gets as much, as many likes or views as possible. And that's certainly not the thing that's challenging or upsetting. Like the thing that takes a long time to understand is not going to compel you to hit the thumbs up button immediately and thus share it to other people and signal to the algorithm that it's good. Um, so I hope that, we can use our taste to, to seek out more of those kinds of things and change our attitude so that we have more patience or more desire for those challenging and surprising things. So we kind of have to understand that the algorithmic feeds are, are not giving that to us and we might be missing out on it. And how, how do you get it when you want new ideas and inspiration? Where do you go? What do you look for? I think it's hard right now. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, I think we are in a bad moment for interesting ideas and culture. Not that nothing is interesting, but it's hard to find and seek out and sustain things that aren't immediately popular, um, whether that's by a TikTok or by Patreon or whatever. Um, so I think, I mean... There are a few different things I do, I suppose. I try to find voices I like to follow. So like a writer or a musician or, you know, a TikTok video maker, and I pay attention to them intentionally. Like I make sure to go visit their website or catch up on their newsletter or like check their TikTok feed because the, the For You feed is not always going to give it to you. So I try to you know, actually follow these people in depth and, and see what they're thinking on a daily and weekly basis. And I find that gives you a deeper connection with them and it makes you have more interesting thoughts yourself because you're kind of following their thought process rather than just getting a single snapshot once every two weeks. Um, and I also think there's this like intolerance right now for 
history and kind of obscurity where an algorithmic feed encourages you to engage with something in a fast and shallow way. You know, you hit the like button, you move on to the next thing. But I think if you can take some time to like look up the history of the things you like and kind of dig some dig up some interesting facts on your own and like find out more, that's going to give you a better relationship to culture and that's going to make you more interested in, in things that might be outside of your comfort zone at a given moment. What about inspiration from the physical world? Like, were you ever the type of person to browse a record shop or go into a bookstore and pick up a book because of a staffer's recommendation? For sure. I mean, I think physical stores are often the best example of curation, whether that's a, a indie bookstore or a fashion boutique or a design store. I mean, I, I just went to a design store in, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, that showcased all of the stuff made by the artists in one particular warehouse nearby. And it was just the most beautifully like curated selection of vases and furniture and sculptures and art. And it was made by this group of people who all knew each other and supported each other. And that was such a beautiful example of like how curation works and how it follows human relationships and how it can, one object can illuminate another one. Like they all seem to relate to each other and create this almost movement together. Um, so I love going to stores like that. And bookstores too. I mean, I, I write in my book about the McNally Jackson bookstore, which is still in Soho, but it moved from its original location. And it just had the most striking two front tables of fiction and nonfiction books. And it was not just what had come out recently, but what the staff was looking at different genres, surprising contrasts, like maybe there's poetry or memoir in with the fiction. Maybe there's academic books in with the popular history and the nonfiction. And it was, I just loved getting a sense of how the, the bookstore staff curated these and created contrasts and created this like network of ideas within the store. Uh, so I find all of that really, really inspiring, but you have to seek it out still, you know, it's, right. it's not every store that functions that way. And you need to go find the ones that engage with your own kinds of tastes and your own methods of discovery. Like I, I'm not a great fashion shopper, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> but I know vintage stores are amazing and there is such a deep sense of taste displayed through, you know, a selection of clothing brands. Um, so I think it, it can totally exist and it's often, the physical spaces are often more offline because <laughs> you have to to sit there and look at how things relate to each other and, and move through a, a selection of stuff. Do you have like a notion doc where you keep everything uh, or do you have a Trello board with ideas? Like how do you, how do you sort of organize your inspiration so that it's useful to you later? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's like a habit that you have to cultivate to like keep a record and to create a create an archive for yourself and i think in some ways something like instagram can do that like that can be a mood board or a collection of material from your own life that you relate to um for me personally i think most often i i use this app that's now called microsoft to do but it used to be called wonderlist it was a kind of like indie note-taking software um 
but it's a great <laughs> it's a great tool for lists and notes and also longer text documents. And I find that super, super useful just in terms of keeping track of my random thoughts. Because uh, I do, I mean, my writing process or thinking process tends to happen when I'm just walking around and maybe some idea will hit me or something will inspire me and I'll, I'll make sure to write it down. Um, but I also find it really interesting, the kind of infinite camera roll that exists for everyone now. Like you have your phone in your pocket. We take more photos every day than people took in their entire lives a hundred years ago or 60 years ago, whatever. Um, and so this, my photos are like a visual record of everything I've seen, everything that struck me, tons of screenshots of stuff that I see on the internet that I want to go back to. So I also think that's like a way of capturing your experience and keeping a record of it. But then going back through those records is another matter. Like, right. I might keep tons of notes, but I don't always read back through them. Right. Uh, I take a million screenshots and photos, but I only seek them. I only dig them up if I need to go back to that moment. But that is often incredibly useful. Like in the book, I was writing about a reporting trip I did to Iceland in 2019, I think. Um and so I could go back through my camera roll and look at every photo I took on that trip and kind of relive it and see new things in it and see things that I could describe in a new way or that related to my, to my new work. Uh, so I find that incredibly powerful and new. I started to use this service called Chatbooks and forcing myself that you can make a monthly photo book from your phone images. Mm, like a physical book? Yeah, like a physical book. So it forces me every month to pick 30 items and some of them are screenshots <laughs> too. And I'm just trying not to be too precious about it, but I feel like if I, if I have a physical book, it'll somehow stick with me more. Totally. I mean, it's. I think what we miss is that all of these things used to happen all the time, just in much more analog ways. Like I remember my family bookshelves of photo albums that there was, you know, one per year, they were labeled with the years and you could go back through them. Um, so I feel like people have always curated their lives and kept track of moments and ideas and stuff. Or you can think back to like a, the idea of a day book in which you kept wrote down little lines of things that you liked. Uh, as well as your diary. Um, so I think there's always been ways to do these things, but we've given over so much of that responsibility to digital technology and to recommendation algorithms. Like even our photos, like your iPhone automatically assembles your photos into like an evocative slideshow of your vacation, where that really should be a thing that you do for yourself so that you can think about what you experienced. Like, the automation of our experiences and memories and tastes is something that's totally creepy to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kyle, as you're fielding all this interest around filter world, is there anything you wish more people would ask you about the book and your research? I mean, when you write a long book, it's like you yourself almost lose track of what's in it and what's not in it. Cause you've just thought through everything so many times. Um, but I think, I mean, what I'm excited to talk about more as the book comes out is kind of the history of algorithmic feeds or even the history of ideas of automation. Um, 
So there's really interesting examples of MIT researchers making early music recommendation systems that just worked over email. And that, you know, Spotify was not the first thing to do that. Um, and I also like discussing historical precedents. Like I described the mechanical Turk in the book, which was this theoretically chess-playing robot that existed in the 18th century, I think. Um, and it was this this mechanical Turk man figure wearing a turban on top of a cabinet. And theoretically, it played chess by the system of gears and clockwork, and it, it knew exactly what to do. But in reality, this technology was like actually driven by a small man hiding inside the cabinet and playing the <laughs> chess game for the robot. Uh, so I love things like that as a metaphor for how we relate to algorithmic feeds and the fact that we don't always know when technology is working or when it's a human's choice versus an automated technological choice. Um, so I think those, like that historical aspect of the book is also important. And I think it's important to connect to the history and remember that these problems are like not completely unprecedented and there's always been critiques that culture is too shallow or too the same or technology is ruining it. Um, so I, I don't want to, I don't want people to think that I'm, you know, making this argument outside of that context. Kyle, I love to end these interviews with a little bit of live curation, if you will, where <laughs> my guests will pick I'd say three to five, like books, movies, podcasts, albums that they think everyone should experience because they're just so good. Oh, let's see. Well, things that have been sticking in my mind lately a lot. I always, always go back to this essay called In Praise of Shadows by the Japanese novelist Junichiro Tanizaki. And it's this kind of short 40-page essay written in 1933 uh, in which Tanizaki kind of reflects on how the rise of electric lights has changed Tokyo and like changed culture and society for him as he was living through this like period of industrialization in Japan. And I just think that essay captures so much and is so elegant and cool that I think everyone should read it. So it's been published in the US by the same indie press since 1977. It was just a fantastic book. Uh, so you gotta get that. Um, I've also been obsessed with the Swedish or Swiss or Swedish. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, it's it's uh, a furniture designer called the USM modular, which are these kind of modular shelving systems and credenzas and desks and tables. They kind of look like giant connects or something. And they're grids of metal tubes connected by little ball sockets and then you fill in the shelves with this powder coated steel in bright colors and i just think they're so cool and you don't see them in the united states as much so i feel like everyone should go check that out um and in, in my own life like i i did my spotify wrapped this year and last year and I think I was in the 0.01% top listeners of the Bill Evans trio, which is a <laughs> jazz trio from the 1960s. And I, you know, at one level, it's like, wow, that's almost an insult. <laughs> You've listened to this more than anyone on earth. Um, but I just find 
those the trio records from the 60s particularly the live ones to just be like amazing amazing jazz and like the best writing or working or thinking music that you could possibly ask for plus it's good for a dinner party background so that's always helpful um what else i think in cooking like my apartment has a bad electric coil stove and i've always been really frustrated because you can't cook with a wok on it very easily like you can't do good stir fry so my my cooking curation would be uh an induction burner that you just put on top of your stove and it gets way hotter way faster and is way more controllable than your your bad rental stove <laughs> so i highly <laughs> recommend americans particularly look into induction burners and try those out as like a cooking implement in terms of books like it, it can be hard to find inspiring books and you never really know what you're going to get into but i've been reading the work of this british historian orlando figues for like the past year or more and i kind of stumbled into his work because i read this book of his called the europeans which is a kind of triple biography of uh Turgenev, the novelist, and then a, a singer and a composer in kind of 19th century Europe. Um, but anyway, that book was great. And then I just went through Orlando Figues' entire body of work, which is a lot of Russian history, because that's what he writes about. Um, and I just love his writing so much that I love reading about Russia in a way that I never thought I would, because I have <laughs> I have no interest in Russia, I have no background in it, I have no exposure to it, but his writing and his history is so eloquent and interesting and, like, wide scope that I have just read every book he's written <laughs> over the past year or two. And I think that's a rare experience when you find an artist or writer who compels you so much that you're just, like, driven to go through all of their work. But I think that's a process that's worth doing too, is like when you find someone you like or you find something that's compelling, like go find everything else they did because you'll probably like that too. Kyle, those are fantastic recommendations. I know I know who I'm going to listen to today. <laughs> it's great. It's great. The live, live at the Village Vanguard, full three disc set. It's fantastic. <laughs> you can follow Kyle on Twitter at Chayka K. That's C-H-A-Y-K-A-K. You can also subscribe to his newsletter at kylechayka.substack.com. We've put links to everything Kyle's recommended in the Flipboard storyboard that you'll find in the show's notes. Big thank you to our audio editor, Anne Lay. If you want to find out more about Flipboard, where enthusiasts are curating stories they recommend across thousands of interests, download the app or head over to our website at flipboard.com. Anyone can be a curator on Flipboard. Simply create an account and start flipping to share your ideas with the world. <laughs>